Good morning. What a joy to be with y'all this morning. It is time to get my preach on. Come on. Hey, all right, all right. Uh, Just a joy to be gathered here with you. If you're watching online, of all the places you could be tuned in, you've chosen to watch with us. Thank you so much. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 6. As you're doing that, I want to remind you we've been preaching through a sermon series called Rebuild. Nehemiah is a man who was grieved that the wall of Jerusalem, the city of God, had been broken down. And he takes it upon himself to rebuild that wall. Today, in our text, Nehemiah finishes rebuilding the wall. Yes. In the United States of America, we have built some incredible things. One of the most spectacular is the Empire State Building. I got a few pictures of it on screen. I am afraid of heights. I have seen these pictures before and they come to my mind in my worst, darkest nightmares. This is the Empire State Building built in the 1930s. Here's a second picture if that one wasn't enough to terrify you. These are guys sleeping on an I-beam on like the 102nd floor. Let me tell you just some stuff about the Empire State Building as we're getting started. And as you're turning in your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 6, the Empire State Building is a 102-story skyscraper located, of course, in New York City. It stands 1,454 feet high, which is 1,454 feet too high as far as I'm concerned. Can I get an amen? Amen. God bless you guys. The Empire State Building was the tallest building from the time it was finished on March 17th, 1930 until, uh, uh, from the time it it was finished on uh, April 11th, 1931. Building started March 17th of 1930. If you were doing the math, it took 410 days to completely finish the project. At 102 stories and 410 days, that's an average of about four days per completed story. The workforce was 3,400 workers doing stuff like this. How these guys ever got anything done if that was me in those pictures, I'd have my arms and legs wrapped so tightly around that I-beam, you could not peel me off with ten men. There have been some really cool things built in the Bible. Moses built the tabernacle in the wilderness out of materials that would have been rudimentary at best. The place where God could fellowship with his people. My mind also went to uh, the story of Noah building the ark. Probably Noah built the ark with just him and his sons, four people in total, uh, at 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high, which is a more comfortable height for me, uh, they probably would have spent about 65 years, if you do the math, based on some scholarship, probably would have taken 65 years to build the ark. Nehemiah rebuilds the wall of Jerusalem. Check this out, though. As As he hears the news... That the wall of Jerusalem is broken down. He's 800 miles away. In the kingdom of Artaxerxes, he has no transportation, no help, no plan, no workforce. He doesn't have any vacation time off. He doesn't have a large sum of money to fund the project. Yet he 
gets an impossible job completed. Today, we're going to look at the last part of Nehemiah's rebuild project. Now the wall is restored. Friends, we're going to be able to learn from the approach Nehemiah uses to finish the wall, things that will help you and I become better leaders as servants in the kingdom of God. Let me recap for you briefly. As I mentioned first, in chapter 1, Nehemiah hears that the wall of Jerusalem is torn down. In chapter 2, after months of praying and mourning and fasting, Nehemiah has a meticulous, particular plan. Sorry, that's my mic and my manly uh, beard hair right here. Nehemiah has a particular, specific plan that after prayer, he mentions to the king, and as a result of his praying, God has his hand on Nehemiah. God grants Nehemiah his request. In the third chapter, Nehemiah administrates, Nehemiah administrates the rebuilding of the wall with the type of administrative poise we would expect to see in the president of some modern-day Fortune 500 company. Specific groups of people with specific tasks for specific jobs. He's delegating it all. In the next chapter, chapter 4, Nehemiah has to deal with opposition from the outside. And as you're doing big things from God and rebuilding things that have been torn down in your own life, there's going to be external opposition. Nehemiah deals with that. In the next chapter, chapter 5, Nehemiah deals with internal conflict. He's taken on just about everything. And now, in chapter 6 and verse 1, we're going to get into our content of our story today. Let's pick up our text right there. Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 1. The Bible says this. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, and then he pauses right there. Now, note here is that there's no gaps left in the wall. Nehemiah has taken time to make sure that the wall is constructed in a way that will be safe and secure. This took a lot of effort. This is a big, major project. Now, the gates at this point are not set. So right now in our text, they're just days away from completing the wall. So the project's nearly over. The people had to be anticipating the project coming to completion. Finally, they had seen this wall raise up before them as a result of God's blessing and their efforts. Now they were just about finished. But with every big building project like this came without a doubt a significant amount of fatigue. We don't know exactly what the working conditions were when these people rebuilt this wall. But we know they would have been less than what are required now in the United States of America to do this kind of a building project. These guys had to be fatigued. They were building out of rocks and mud and clay and dirt. This was a lot of sweat, equity, and back-breaking work that went into rebuilding this wall. They had to be tired, but that fatigue also had to give way to some encouragement. The wall was nearly done. In verse 2, the the story continues. Sanballat and Geshem sent Nehemiah a message, and here's what the message said. Come, 
let us meet together in one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I, Nehemiah, sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. I want you to say that with me. Cannot go down. Let's do that one more time. Cannot go down. This is going to be important later. I'm going to expound on this when we do some application from this text. But I want you to remember that Nehemiah took a stand and he said, I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Verse 4, four times these people send Nehemiah this message. And each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time Sambalat sent his aid to me with the same message. And in his hand was, listen to this, an un sealed letter. That's significant too. Verse 6, the story continues. In this unsealed letter was written, it is reported. It's reported. That's significant among the nations. And how about this? And Geshem says that it's true. That you and the Jews are plotting to revolt and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, catch this, according to these reports, neener, neener, You are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this claim about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now, this report will get back to the king, so come and let us meet together. Nehemiah says, I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you're saying is happening. You're just making it up in your head. They were trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. This poor guy cannot catch a break. He can see the finish line and still the opposition continues. When word gets to these evildoers, they panic and they attempt again to destroy him. Friends, I want to tell you something. When you're doing something significant in your life and you're experiencing transformation, that's likely going to intimidate people. That's the case for Nehemiah here in our text. Nehemiah was doing something big for God and these people were intimidated. And there, there are lots of times where intimidated individuals become adversarial. Which is what was going on here. And in the face of that adversity, what's Nehemiah's knee-jerk reaction? It's been the same. The whole series, it's prayer. As I was thinking about this series and praying over this sermon, I thought to myself, you know, we could have called this something other than rebuild. Now, obviously, rebuild focuses on what's happening with Nehemiah, but we could have called this the secret ingredient. The secret ingredient. Now, if, you're, if you know anything about me, you know that I love food. I love to eat. And for whatever reason, my Facebook friend social network has lots of people in it that seem to only post these recipes They're like these special recipes. Some of you are my friends and you're doing this and it's causing me to be tempted and to want to sin, the sin of gluttony. So stop posting these things and you'll keep me from sinning, okay? Shame on y'all. But I'm always looking in the recipes for what? For that secret ingredient. Man, the secret ingredient is that thing that just makes everything better or makes it so much easier or so much enjoyable. And as we look over the the life story of Nehemiah, that's the secret ingredient to this man's success 
He is a prayer. In verse 10, the story continues, and I'm going to condense this down for the sake of time. I'm going to read verses 10 and 11, then I'm going to go to verse 15. The Bible says, One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, son of Mahedabel, who was shut up in his home. He said, Let us meet in the house of God inside the temple, and let's close the temple doors, because men are coming to kill you by night. They are going to kill you. Nehemiah says in verse 11, But I said, Should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. Verse 15. So, the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in how many days? In 52 days. Everybody say, 52 days. This was a significant project. One that was so significant, people on the outside became adversarial. And they were so adversarial that they even tried to threaten Nehemiah's life as a way to distract him from completing the project. Even though Nehemiah's life was threatened, Nehemiah stayed committed. And not only did he stay committed, if you read our text very closely, what you realize is Nehemiah viewed it as a sin to disregard his purpose. Now, I didn't get into it for the sake of time, but in verse 14, Nehemiah says, Remember, Lord, Tobiah and Sanballat, and my God, because of what they have done, remember also the prophet Noadiah, how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. This is a vindictive, vengeful prayer. Have you ever been cut off in traffic? Huh? Has anybody ever done anything that really irritated you? These guys had irritated Nehemiah, and you know what he did? He prayed a little prayer of vengeance on them to God. God, (laughs) I want to trump these guys. But Lord, remember what they've done to me. And so I get this vision. If we were to transport Nehemiah in today's culture, and I'm always zipping around. I am not the world's best driver, okay? But I get the vision of Nehemiah getting cut off in traffic and speeding up and driving by a person and putting his hand out, like the hand of prayer. Now, they're expecting to see an obscene gesture. But he's just praying of it, Lord, remember this man in this 2008 Camry? God, you know where this man lives. And you know the wrong that has been committed against me. Lord, keep your mind on this man. Right? So I wanted to just tell you, man, guys who are leaders in the Scriptures... They're reactive like you and I are. What they're doing when they react is probably different. So I want you to feel free to give yourself permission to stretch out your hand, not in an obscene gesture, but in an attitude of prayer over people who frustrate and irritate you in life and just ask God, remember those individuals. He'll know what you're talking about, okay? Okay, God bless you guys. God bless you guys. So Nehemiah finishes building the wall. In 52 days. That's an even more significant architectural accomplishment than building the Empire State Building one floor every four days in the 1930s. Finally, in verse 7, we get the the words of Nehemiah after the wall has been finished. So here we go. Chapter 7 and verse 1. After the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place... 
the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, same guy who brought in the message that the walls were broken down in chapter 1, verse 1. And along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel. Why? Because these were great men of integrity and they feared God more than most people do. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot, while the gatekeepers are still on duty. Have them shut the doors and bar them. Also, appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. That's the content of our, of our story today. Let me give you four points of application, and then we're going to get out of here and continue the rebuilding processes that we've started in our lives as we continue to live and surrender to Jesus Christ. Now the walls are restored. Four things Nehemiah does that we've read in our text that I've tried to cue you in on are these. The first is Nehemiah and leaders like Nehemiah don't leave gaps. Leaders don't leave gaps. Now, recently, archaeologists have uncovered what we believe to be the wall Nehemiah restored in the city of David. What these archaeologists tell us is that in certain places, this wall would have been 16 feet thick. Now, as I indicated, this would have been a wall made out of like stone, clay, mud, and these kind of rudimentary building equipment types of things. But if there was a crack in the wall, the whole structure of the wall would have been compromised. So whoever's in charge of the rebuilding process has to do two things. The first thing they have to do is they have to pay attention to detail. When I say leaders don't leave gaps, what I'm meaning is in your life, in your rebuilding processes, you've got to pay attention to detail. I want to tell you a story from my life. And first I want to say this. And if my bride is watching right now, I want her to be very clear. Of the two adults in my home, I am definitely the worst driver. Okay? So i got 1,500 witnesses saying I'm the worst driver. Second thing I want to admit, if there's a problem with the functioning of our vehicle, it falls on the leader of the household, which would be me. Okay? So, we're driving to, we got the blessed to go out of town to Florida last week. We left after church last Sunday. I was driving. I was fatigued. We pull into a place in Tallahassee and we sleep that night. We get up the next morning and my beautiful bride, who's a much better driver than I am, says, Babe, would you like for me to drive and you can finish some little work stuff? And I said, That would be such a blessing, honey. So we love to travel. We live nine hours from family. We've made that trip ten bajillion times and know how to do it right with little kids. So we're in the Tahoe with the praise music going, the sun is shining in, everybody's feeling good, we're heading on to vacation, I'm starting to decompress, and all of a sudden my wife says, babe, we're about an hour from Tallahassee, the the power steering feels like it's kind of going out. And I was like, that's weird, and so I put my hand on the wheel, and sure enough, it feels like harder than it normally does to make adjustments in steering. And then all of a sudden, the engine starts to do this weird rev thing. It's almost like we're shifting in and out of neutral. And so she looks down at the gas gauge, talking to you about attention to detail. What y'all know about attention to detail, huh? 
She glances down at the gas gauge, and would you know that the Langhofer family ran out of gas on I-10 about an hour east of Tallahassee. So let me show you some photos here. This is me in the passenger seat and my bride in the driver's seat. Here's another photo of the inside of our vehicle where chaos is starting to break loose. We are stranded about an hour and a half, okay, on the side of the road with no gas and no AC. Uh, this is a picture now of the rear view, of my rear view mirror of my main man, Kevin. Kevin is my boy who come alongside us and fills us up with two gallons of gas for the price of a down payment on a very large new home, okay? <laughs> so let me show you another look. This is Kevin's whip, and he is riding in style. All right, and here's me and Kevin just at the very end of this exchange. Finally now, an hour and a half later, my boy Kevin got it hooked up. We rolling, okay? <laughs> so the deal is, it's an attention to detail thing, guys, Okay? When you're rolling and you're feeling it, you're not looking at the gas gauge. But let me be the first person to tell you, you don't look at that gas gauge often enough, you're going to find yourself stranded on the way to doing something incredible, okay? So attention to detail. Second thing I want to tell you and remind you of is Nehemiah's attention to detail in our text is all about his striving for excellence. When I say leaders don't leave gaps, that's attention to detail and that's striving for excellence. The Apostle Paul uh, says to the Colossian church in chapter 3 and verse 23, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for human masters. Now the applications of this are so far reaching, there's no way we have time to get into it today. But it's not enough to simply be an attentive to detail type of person. Let me tell you what my dad told me. Son, if it's worth doing, and some of you had a dad like I had because you know where I'm going with this already. If it's worth doing, son, it's worth doing right. Now, at 15 years old, I'm like, yeah, dad, whatever. I got people to go hang out with and phone calls to make and stuff to do. So I'm flying through everything as fast as I can. But the older I get, the more right I realize my parents were. And that's true. If it's worth doing, friends, it's worth doing right. And Nehemiah decided when he was going to rebuild this wall, he was going to do it in a way that glorified God. Not in a way that glorified himself. So he's looking meticulously at every single gap in the wall such that he can authoritatively say not one gap was left. Second leadership principle today is that leaders don't listen to gossip. Catch verse 5 again. Just go back to verse 5 really quickly. The letter that Sambalat sends to Nehemiah in verse 5, he sends with a guy. And when Nehemiah gets it, Nehemiah says this about the letter. It was an unsealed letter. Let me tell you what's significant about that. Letters in Nehemiah's day would have been sent about the same way correspondence would have been sent sent during the time of kings and queens in England. There would have been a wax drop placed on the stamp and then some sort of a placed on the letter and then some sort of a seal stamped into that, indicating its accuracy and its authenticity. Okay? So an unsealed letter in Nehemiah's day, check this out, is the same thing today as posting your personal or someone else's personal private business on your Facebook page. 
Okay? An unsealed letter in Nehemiah's day was the same thing as a personal post is today about your business or someone else's on your Facebook page. Everybody who had the letter in every place this guy goes would have opened the letter and said, Oh, my word. There is a report. Did you hear what Nehemiah is doing? He's trying to overthrow the king and usurp the government and establish himself as a world power and everything's going to go crazy and the world's going to end. We've got to start hoarding goods and ammunition. So their deliberate attempt at spreading this rumor is to unseal the letter. And you can tell it's a rumor because of this language used in verse 6. For example, it is reported, Nehemiah. <laughs> and by the way, Geshem says that it's true. You know, my homeboy Geshem. And according to these other reports that we've heard, all of this is hearsay. That's gossip. What that is, is that's gossip. Let me tell you two things. First, nothing attracts gossip like purpose. Did you catch that? Nothing attracts gossip like purpose. Nehemiah set out to do something big for God. And that intimidated people and attracted their adversarial response of gossip. And so if you're out there under the sound of my voice and people are talking poorly of you or looking at you with eyes that are a little bit uncertain, it could be that you're doing the right thing. Now let me tell you something else. The, the, the way to deal with gossip, okay, nothing deals with gossip. Watch this. Nothing deals with gossip like sticking to your purpose. Nothing will deal with gossip better than sticking to your purpose. So nothing is going to attract gossip like having a purpose will attract gossip. And nothing is going to help you overcome that gossip like sticking to your purpose will help you overcome that gossip. These guys are incessant. Multiple times they're seeking after Nehemiah, throwing this gossip in, their fa- in his face, and he consistently sticks to his purpose. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 19 would tell us this, friends. A gossip betrays a confidence, so avoid a man who talks too much. In other words, don't get in a puking contest with a buzzard. They're always going to be able to puke one more time than you are. Let go of people trying to bring you down and surround yourself with trying to bring you up. You need to do gossip remediation Nehemiah's way. Here's what he says. I had you repeat it. I am living on purpose so I cannot go down. I'm saying Ono oh to, to Ono. Oh he said, come meet with us in the valley of Ono. Oh we want to talk to you about this stuff. He said Ono oh no to Ono. Oh and said, guys, I'm living on purpose, man. I cannot go down. And I want, to, I want to say that a little bit differently. If you are living on purpose, you will not go down. If you're living on purpose, you will not go down. So don't listen to the gossip. Leaders don't listen to gossip. They stay on purpose. Nothing attracts gossip like purpose. And nothing deals with gossip as effectively as sticking to your purpose so you need to tell all the naysayers, I'm living on purpose. I cannot go down and deal with y'all down there because I'm living on purpose. Another thing is leaders do not run from grief. Let me read you a story really quickly. 
January 25th, 1953, Springfield, Illinois. Illinois. Michael McNamee ran away from home because he was failing school. Young Michael was just 11 years old at the time. And he ran away from home because of what he feared his parents' reactions would be as a result of his failing grades. He set out from his home in Oakland, California on a Thursday morning after sneaking aboard a Union Pacific Railroad train and ended up in Chicago, Illinois by Saturday afternoon. He boarded another train in Chicago using the same method and ended up in Springfield, Illinois, where he was there picked up by police. This sounds about right for an 11-year-old's response to a difficult, impending situation, doesn't it? We would almost expect 11-year-olds who face difficulty to have some thought of running away. How many times do mature Christian men and women who know better act just like this 11-year-old and hop on a train headed to nowhere and try to run as far as fast as they can from the rebuilding projects they need to attend to in their own lives. Sometimes, friends, the best way to deal with fear and doubt is to just face it head on. You know, you guys happen to suffer from a terminal condition that I do. It's called being a human being. That means we're going to make mistakes and have failures. So often it's easy to buy into this idea that we have to be a second incarnation of Jesus Christ. That we have to get life perfect. And then when we do fail and we do make mistakes, we want to avoid and deny and run. My encouragement to you is to handle these situations like Nehemiah handled them. A guy calls to him and says, look, let's lock ourselves in God's house. Let's just lock ourselves away in the house of God and let's just barricade the door and not let any of these people in in the temple who are going to try to kill you. And that's how some of us would live, man. We would lose ourselves in Christian blogs and devotionals and even reading God's Word without ever actually dealing with and completing the rebuilding tasks that we're trying to finish in our own lives. We end up hiding in the same temple. Nehemiah said, I will not go there. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to run away from the project at hand. I'm going to stay. I'm going to stick with it. And I'm going to face the music, whatever tune happens to play. And some of you find yourselves in those kinds of situations. My confession to you is that I absolutely do. Believe it or not, your preacher makes mistakes. And the one mistake I made, I was just at fault for thinking I had made a mistake when I really hadn't. And now I have to live with that the rest of my life. No, man, I make mistakes every day. Bad decisions, talking to families, or say yes to too many things. And it's easy to try and run from that and pretend that it doesn't exist. But we've got to choose not to lock ourselves away in the temple and pretend like everything is fine and barricade the door. We've got to stick with it and face the music, whatever tune happens to play, and God will see us through. 
Up to now, our text has dealt with Nehemiah's rebuilding. From this point in the text forward, from chapter 7 forward, now Nehemiah doesn't restore the wall so much as he restores the people of God. The first six chapters are about restoring the wall. The wall has to be put back in place before he can really restore the people of God. Leaders don't forget to be on guard. Leaders don't forget to be on guard. Nehemiah gives some pretty specific instruction here. Okay? He says, I want to set up two men, Hananiah and Hananiah, who have two character traits that are essential to keep this people in line. First character trait, they've got to have integrity. Second character trait, they've got to fear God. And I want these guys to make sure that before they open the gates, the sun is high in the sky so that they're 100% certain that no force can come in and ransack the, the walls again and overthrow the temple again. And I want them to make sure that they close the gates before they leave duty so that nothing can put this city in danger again. And I want to tell you, friends, our families and our world and our culture and our church needs men and women who have those same two character traits. You want to know how to be on guard against the enemy? First quality is to have integrity. The first thing is to have integrity. These were the kind of guys who did what they said they were going to do, and it was the right thing even when doing the right thing was tough. And do you know why they had the ability to do it? Because of the fear they had for God. You see, those two things are coupled hand in hand. At one point in time, the kingdom of England was in control of India. And the man England had established to be viceroy of India, I want you to write his name down. You should do some research on this guy. His name was John Lawrence. John Lawrence actually was alive at the time of the Indian mutiny when they were trying to overthrow English rule. And it said that it was chiefly through his skill and courage that India was saved to England. So much so that he actually became to be called the savior of India. He was a man, many would say, who simply did not know what being afraid meant. Because his life was more often in danger than it was not in danger. He was a very religious and God-fearing man, and when he died, he was buried in Westminster Abbey, which in England is this place where uh, men and women who are champions of the faith are buried. They put these words on his tombstone. John Lawrence feared man so little because he feared God so much. That's what being on guard really means. It really means being willing to do the tough stuff and stick with the plan and live intentionally and live on purpose regardless of what people are going to think because I don't fear those people's response as much as I fear the response of the one who calls me to these purposes. I don't know what the need is in your life this morning, but I know there should be a rebuilding project going on. Because like me, each of you guys are human and all of us are making mistakes. But some of you are at that point where I'm fearing man's reaction to my failures or to my mess-ups or to my mistakes more than I'm fearing God's reaction 
So at some point, we've got to lay all that aside and say, God, I'm, I'm ready to be on mission and on purpose for you. So I'm not going to leave any gaps in the wall. I'm going to stop listening to gossip. I'm going to stop running from grief, and I'm going to be on guard, and I'm going to fear you more than I fear anything else. I'm going to close in prayer right now, and after I close in prayer, we're going to invite you to come forward. Please do. Please let us walk along this journey of rebuilding with you. Whatever your need is, after I pray while we sing, I invite you to come forward. Let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for the fun we've had today. It is so fun to be in your house learning from your word with our forever family. God, I know there are so many people under the sound of my voice that are rebuilding or need to start rebuilding. And there are all these things that are coming against them. And I pray that you have spoken and will continue to speak to hearts this morning. And any who have a need would respond. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. Please stand while together we sing.